It's the Tuesday Tout Edition. We'll talk with former Tout Wars mixed auction champion and the vice president for stats at MLB Advanced Media, Corey Schwartz, is next on Baseball HQ Radio. Which is a high fly ball to right deep. Going back is Tarasco to the warning track. To the wall, he's under it now. And it's taken away from him by a fan. And they're going to call it a home run. I can't believe it. Pitching Garcia is calling it a home run. And Tarasco is out to argue. A terrible call by Richie Garcia. It's all time. Learn to play the winner's way. Because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, May the 13th. It's show number 33 of the 2014 fantasy baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we'll be talking with Corey Schwartz about Pitch FX stats, the new wave of even more advanced stats that's on the way, and his facts and flukes. We'll also have commentaries from the experts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our Metric Minute, analyst Ryan Bloomfield talks about ground ball, line drive, and fly ball rates for hitters. And in the Minor League Minute, BaseballHQ.com analyst Rob Gordon talks about Cleveland right-hander Trevor Bauer. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us on the Tuesday Tout Edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Let's talk some baseball. And we open our Tuesday Tout Edition, as always, with our feature expert interview. Former Tout Wars mixed auction champion and the vice president for stats at MLB Advanced Media, Corey Schwartz, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks, Patrick, for having me on. I appreciate it. And Corey, I'd like to open with a thank you. We won the Fantasy Sports Writer Association Fantasy Sports Podcast of the Year Award for 2013, and the show I sent in as part of my entry was the show that you were on last year. So congratulations to you sharing in the award, and uh, thanks again. Well, I I appreciate it, and congratulations to you, and maybe we can uh, work on it and make it two in a row, you know, get a little streak going. That's right, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Corey, before we get started on the show proper, can maybe you just quickly outline how you got to be the Director of Statistics and Vice President at Major League Baseball Advanced Media, because lots of our listeners wish they were. Well, you know, as they say in baseball, it's better to be lucky than good. You know, I've, I've been a baseball fan my whole life, like I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast, and I've always wanted to be involved in you know, I originally thought I wanted to be the GM of the Yankees, and then as I got older, I was more interested in the public relations aspects. Uh, so I went to school for sport management. Then I, uh, I ended up working for the NBA for about five and a half years, and someone I met at the NBA ended up working for Major League Baseball when they were launching MLB.com back in the fall of 2000. Uh, and she recommended me for a job, and after a few interviews and, and uh, several probably an excessive number of follow-up calls by me expressing my interest in the job. They finally relented and hired me, and I've been here since 2001. And, and uh, knock on wood, hopefully this is, this, is where I'll, this is where I'll stay. And, Corey, you're also an accomplished fantasy baseball player, a past champion of Tote Wars Mixed. How are your expert league teams doing this year? It's a little bit of a mixed bag. I've got one team up to second place. Um, my NFBC team is in fifth. We, I've bounced back and forth between third and fifth, but I'm having kind of quiet, kind of a quiet week, and I'm having a lot of injuries. Uh, my Tout Wars team is doing terrible again, which is really disappointing because I, I like my roster. And then in the uh, the Fantasy 411 Listener League, I'm right in the pack, but I'm gradually moving up. So it's a little bit all over the map. But you know, I'm I'm very much a believer that you know y- you build a team that's designed to win over a full season. 
Um, you try and take advantages of trends and things that come along during the course of the season, but if you believe in your players and you have some conviction in what they'll do, you have to be willing to let that play out uh, and be patient. So it, it's tough to it's tough to sit there and look at a team that feels like it's out of it in, in April and May, um, but you can come back if you've got the right players. You just have to be honest about what you have on your roster. And how long do you stay honest before you start thinking, you know what, there's definitely something going on here and I have to make some fixes, and uh, do you run the risk of being too late on that? Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, you also run the risk of being too early if you make moves prematurely. I think ultimately the amount of patience you put into any player has to correspond with how much you've invested in them. Um, In Tout Wars, my number one dollar purchase was Robinson Cano. Uh, And, you know, for all the caveats, whatever they were, he's on my team now, and I have to have conviction that he will put up numbers because if I were to trade him right now, I'm basically giving up 75% of his potential value over the rest of the season. based on what he's done over the first 25%. So, uh, you know, I believe he'll have a good season. I believe Hanley Ramirez and Jacoby Ellsbury, my other big purchases, will have good seasons, uh, and I have to be willing to wait it out. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, and I'll have to evaluate my process, but um, I don't want to sell out of players like that too early and have someone else get all the benefit of having those great players on their roster. You didn't actually get to attend the draft because you had other businesses that you were looking after on that day of Tout Wars, and the guy who drafted for you sat immediately to my left. And I'm really curious about the process. Uh, this happens to, to fantasy baseball players every year. Some, you know, Something comes up, uh, um, a wedding or a funeral or something comes up and you can't make it. How did you arrange with your proxy as far as instructing him what you wanted, how to go about doing the draft? How detailed do you get in, in providing instruction? Well, that, that was Craig, Craig Glazer from Bloomberg Sports, who's a very skilled fantasy player as well and who plays in some other expert competitions or industry competitions, I guess we should say. I'm always hesitant to use that word expert because yeah, somebody idea. finishes in last place and they're like, well, you're not such an expert, are you? Um, you know, Craig and I spent quite a bit of time talking about players we, you know, finger quote liked, players we didn't like, what we thought player values would be, what kind of strategy and tactics to approach. You know, I sort of gave him a general, a very broad brushstroke overview of, how I like to build a team. I don't like to invest too heavily in starting pitching. I like to have balanced offense rather than specialists, you know, the, the D. Gordon types, you know, the one-category guys. Um, and I like to have a great bullpen. I told him some players I would be very happy to have and some players I would be less excited to have. And then I sort of handed over the reins to him. I think when, when you're having someone proxy draft for you, you know, you're asking someone that you trust and you have to be willing to put some trust in them. But more than anything, you have to, it has to be a good experience for them, too. Um, if I gave Craig a, uh, you know, a checklist and said, you know, get exactly these guys, and he wasn't able to get one of them, that probably wouldn't be a very enjoyable experience for him wondering how I would react. So uh, I put a lot of faith in him. I, I, I remember seeing you know, my first look over the, the players he had gotten. I was ecstatic. You know, Cano and Ellsbury and, and, and Hanley Ramirez, all for what I thought were below market prices. You know, the fact that the team isn't doing well right now, I don't put that on Craig. I put that on me because I didn't give him uh, good enough instructions. But, uh, you know, again, I like the team, and I'm willing to let this one play out for a little while. Yeah, and uh, really, uh, both of you did a really good job at getting those guys under value, so maybe you can blame the players, too, to a certain extent. I mean, they're not delivering as, as expected. Yeah, certainly, you know, look, ultimately the players play, and that's, you know, that's what absolves you when when you lose, and that's what, you know, you have to feel fortunate when you win because the players went out and did it. But, you know, I was the one who told him, look, I'm not afraid of what Robinson Cano will do in Seattle. I think Hanley Ramirez, even if he's not an MVP caliber player, is worth near top dollar and, and so on and so forth. 
um, you know, and I'm, I gave him the framework. So um, ultimately, you know, the, the player selection aspect of it is what's, al- what's always on the fantasy player. You can say, well, my guy had a bad year, but you picked him. So you have to uh, take that into account as well. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, we mentioned the uh, Fantasy Sports Broadcast Award uh, from uh, last year that you were a part of. More importantly, uh, just this last February, you were also honored by Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research, and they gave you the Henry Chadwick Award, which is a very prestigious thing, to recognize the role you played in fostering all the independent research that came out through PitchFX and the data that you made available to the uh, baseball research public. What was it like when they told you you were getting this award, which has some very, very high-level names attached to it? Yeah, honestly, I, look, I couldn't have been more shocked, and I'm not trying to be, you know, disingenuous, you know, or overly modest by saying that. I didn't consider myself, you know, you look at the people who've won, Bill James, John Thorne, Pete Palmer, Sean Foreman, Dave Smith from RetroSheet. Um, those are the legends of our industry. And when I look yeah. at some people who haven't won this award yet, um, you know, people like Nate Silver and, and Keith Wolner and Rob Nyer, to me, those are the kind of people who should be honored with this award who've really done, you know, groundbreaking research in, in sabermetrics. So um, I'm, I'm very, very appreciative to have been chosen for the honor, and, uh, and I feel good about, you know, what I and MLBAM in particular have contributed to the industry. Um, but it, it, it's very, very humbling and, and still kind of surprising and surreal uh, to be held in that, in that caliber of people. And I think that they are right to make a statement to you and through you to Major League Baseball of thanks for you guys put all this money and investment into these into developing these stats vehicles and the mechanisms, and then you basically open source a lot of it and say, okay, you guys have at it, and let's see what we can find out, which is a very broad-minded and open-minded approach by Major League Baseball, considering how much uh, emphasis is being placed on intellectual property in the corporate world and in the government world and so forth. It's a very brave and and uh, open thing for major league baseball to do and and i know you've got some other stuff coming out that we're going to be talking about in a sec but just to, as a level set what percentage of the pitch fx data would you say is made available to the public versus held back for uh, internal use yeah pretty close to 100 uh you know really? we use all of the pitch fx data to generate our own products and services you know at bad and game day and mlb.tv and everything and that data is published out there first and foremost to support those products um, and everything that's published out there is is publicly available for those who you know who can get to it, um, you know who I should say who have the technical wherewithal to build Python scripts and so forth to scrape it down. Um, we don't really hold anything back. The full, uh, you know, all of the metrics to generate the path and, and the trajectory and the spin and everything of the ball are out there. Our pitch classifications are out there. Our strike zone values, top and bottoms, are out there. Um, you know, we, we've kind of reached a, you know, an understanding with the research and the analytic community uh, that we think there are fair and appropriate uses of the data and things that we would be less favorable towards. And I think, for the most part, the community has been fantastic about, um, you know, playing ball with us, so to speak. I think it's a, it's a good alliance where um, we're able to put a great amount of information out into the public space and uh, and see some incredible, you know, research coming out of that. And, you know, look, we've benefited as well. Think about how the clubs have benefited. You know, people like Josh Kalk and Mike Fast, uh, who have, you know, sort of early adapters of the pitch FX data, done amazing research with that, and then ended up working with clubs and, you know, spreading their, their ideas within the industry proper. So uh, it's been a great relationship and I, I think a benefit to literally everybody involved. 
MLB Advanced Media made quite a splash at this year's Sloan Conference. You guys announced you're going to be rolling out, I think you even have rolled out in some parks, even more advanced data capture tools that are going to allow us to see every player, all the ball movement, even the umpires, how they're moving around out there. And so for our listeners who haven't heard about this or don't understand its full breadth of the system, just give us an overview of how it works. Well, this new tracking system, as you said, will track every moving object on the field, uh, the ball, all of the fielders, the, the base runners, the batter's base runner, and track everything in real time relative to each other. So while pitch FX is focused on the ball as it flies from the catcher to the front edge of home plate, this picks up the ball from that point and follows it on out and, and everything else that's going on. And really, we, we don't have a name for it yet, which is why I'm just saying the new tracking system. Um, you know, Ultimately, we think this is going to unlock tremendous secrets and understanding about the game of baseball how all of these different components relate to each other. We have a good, pretty good understanding of individual aspects of play, uh, you know, what makes for good batters. We're understanding a lot more about pitchers and base runners and fielders, but I don't think we have the tools yet to plug them all together and really understand, you know, why does one play turn into a double play ball and why does the other one trickle up the middle for a single? Um, I don't think we really have the, you know, the data yet to support that, and I think this new system will unlock that. It's very, very exciting. Uh, the technology that is is amazing. The, you know the early data that we've seen. Everybody who's who's had exposure to it here at BAM is is just totally excited and and kind of blown away by it. Um, we're up and running in three ballparks right now: Milwaukee, Minnesota, and City Field here in New York. Those are our sort of uh, you know test and development venues. And the plan is to be in all 30 ballparks next season. So uh, it, it's daunting. It's a tremendous amount of work we have yet to do, but. Uh, as a as a baseball fan, this is just unbelievably exciting, and, and we're really looking forward to seeing it up and running. I don't want to get too deeply into the technology, partly because it's very complex, I'm sure, and partly because uh, not that many people are interested in how the sandwich gets made, as long as it tastes good. But it is amazing technology. I've read about it. You're, you have cameras. The cameras are an integral part of pitch FX, but you've also added, is it? Yeah, it's, it's actually a Doppler radar. Uh, that is used to track the, the pitch and the ball because these different technologies, and again, I'm not a technology guy, I'm on the operations and the data side, um, the technologies are better suited to doing different things. So really what we're trying to do is take the best of breed technologies um, and put them together to track all these things that are going on. So um, those, you know, we sort of have one technology that's focused on the ball, and then when the ball goes into play, we have another technology that focuses on the, the fielders and the base runners and so forth, and we sort of plug those data sets together or, or overlay them, if you will, uh, because the, you know, the ball is the common element throughout everything uh, to sort of get the complete picture of play. So, uh, the techno- I mean, again, as I said before, the data that we've seen from it, you know, just looking at some, some sample plays, everybody here just their jaw drops and they go, oh, my God, we'll be able to figure out this and this and this and that. And it, it really just unlocks these just unbelievable possibilities for, you know, for research and understanding and appreciation of the game. Have you guys made any determination about the proportion of the data that will be made available to the research and analytic community? Is it going to be near 100% as pitch FX is, or has that call been made? No, that call hasn't been made. I, you know, as we've said before, we will make data available to the public. Uh, you know, again, our history with pitch FX data and, and with our other stats data is that we're very open about that. We just haven't decided yet, uh, you know, what degree it will be or what mechanism. Uh, you know, we have a commitment publicly and internally to making data publicly available, but unfortunately, we really just don't have the specifics nailed down yet. Some traditionalists, for want of a better term, Corey, grumble 
that all these stats and all this technology is we're enabling us to see at a finer and finer level of mathematical detail what's going on inside the game, but that for them it's somehow making it less entertaining. How do you respond to that critique? <laughs> I, you know, look, I, I'm a forward-thinking guy. I'm a progressive. I, I just can't relate to that. I can't understand how information can ever be viewed as a bad thing. And, and moreover, if you choose to not you know, acknowledge or consume or observe that information, you don't have to. The game is very beautiful on its own. That's what we all appreciate about it. It's a great game to watch. Um, you know, our goal when we start to roll out the tracking system uh, next season is to present it in ways that enhance the fan experience and not distract from it. You know, you watch a game right now on TV or on MLB.tv, and there are little graphics at the top or the bottom of the screen that provide some basic game information or, you know, a strike zone or whatever it may be. But those things are intended to complement your viewing experience uh, rather than detract from it. And that is really our priority and our objective is to present this new information in a way that will, that will help people understand and appreciate the game more rather than getting in the way of it. Um, and again, if people choose to, you know, to, to ignore it and, and just focus on the physical aspects of play and not worry about the data, that's always the part that we're all focused on anyway. I mean, this all emanates from the game and what the players do on the field, and that's always sort of our number one focus is, is making that available. When you look at all the stats, Corey, uh, as a baseball guy, as a fantasy baseball guy, and you look at all the stats that are out there for the public, starting with the basic stuff, batting average and RBIs and so forth, all the way through to the you know hard-hit contact uh, type stuff that is available through the more advanced uh, methods that are out there, which one metric as a fantasy player do you think is the best predictor of success for a batter? Well, that's really tough to say. I mean, I've always, for all players, I tend to sort of gravitate first and foremost to, to walk and strikeout rates because ultimately controlling the strike zone, controlling the batter-pitcher matchup, uh, I think is the biggest determiner of success for either player. But as the game has evolved and we've seen strikeout rates continue to climb in recent years, you sort of have to recalibrate your thinking towards that. That you know, It used to be that if you saw a hitter who had you know, a 3-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio, you'd be really, really concerned about that. And now you're seeing guys, really good players, with 4-to-1 and 5-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratios and, and continuing to have success. Um, so I tend to look, rather than one specific metric, I look at metrics that fit what the player's sort of profile is. So if it's a, if it's a power hitter, um, you know, I'll look at his line drive rates, his batted ball distance, things of that nature. If it's more of a speed-oriented type player, uh, I look at his stolen base opportunities, his, you know, his walk rate, his ground ball rate, things that will enable him to get on base. And for pitcher... You know, I look at velocity, not so much the, the raw velocity number, but the changes in the trends in the velocity and sort of how he's managing his pitch repertoire, adding new pitches, throwing things more, throwing things less, and ultimately throwing them for strikes. So uh, you really have to, uh, you know, you have to sort of have a plan for what you expect this player to do. And sort of the point I made before, you build a fantasy team with a full season in mind, and you build a fantasy team with an understanding of what each roster spot is intended to do, uh, and what you expect from each player, and then you evaluate him based on those expectations. Uh, so I think strike zone discipline is sort of my jumping off point, but I go in a different direction based on the player. Is the new system, as I understand it, is going to be able to give us really precise measurements of the uh, speed of the ball off the bat once it's struck, and uh, that seems like it's going to have a profound uh, impact on our ability to assess how well a, a guy is making contact and how consistently. Yeah, we, we definitely will have that data, batted ball contact. Uh, you know, we'll be able to look at changes in 
not only how hard the player is hitting the ball, but at what launch angle and what launch vector. You know, is a player starting to pull the ball, pull the ball more or less? Uh, is he trending more towards ground balls or versus line drives or fly balls? Maybe against different pitch types, so on and so forth. You know, the one thing we always have to keep in mind is that you know the players are not robotic; they're human. Uh, their performance fluctuates, even for the most consistent players in the game. Their performance will fluctuate over short periods of time. Uh, so, you know, if we see a guy with a rising ground ball rate over a certain period of time, it doesn't necessarily mean he's becoming more of a ground ball hitter. It could just be random variance within you know the range of his performance. So, uh, I think we'll have a tremendous amount of data at our fingertips. Uh, to to observe player performance, but the real challenge will be understanding what's meaningful and what's not. In the aftermath of the announcement from Sloan about your guys' new system, I read several stories that suggested they thought the main improvements from the new measurements is going to be assessing team fielding, individual fielding, and defense as in general. Does that sound correct to you, or is there quite a bit more than that? I, I think that's a big part of it. I think fielding is really, you know, the sort of holy grail right now of sabermetrics because of the limitations of the data. And I don't use that as a, a shot at anybody. I mean, we're, you know, we're subject to those same limitations in our data capture right now as anybody else's. Uh, I think certainly this system and, and the data that comes from it will give us a much greater opportunity to understand, you know, not only who's a good fielder or a poor fielder, but what it is specifically that different players do well. Uh, you know, some guys may position themselves better. Some guys may have a better first step. Some guys may have a, a stronger, more accurate throwing arm. So we'll start to get a better profile of what fielders do well, just like we do with hitters right now, where we can say, well, this guy, uh, you know, has great plate discipline, but doesn't have great power, and so on and so forth. I think it will help us profile players a lot better. But I think that's probably the most, the most sort of uh, noticeable thing that will come from the system. But I think it's one of just really just a number of things uh, that we'll be able to learn over time as relates to base running and fielding and, and how these things all sort of plug together to create the outcomes we see on the field. Do you think the system will allow players whose primary contribution is on the defensive side of the ball and who currently might not be getting their just due financially or in reputation terms that maybe guys like that are all of a sudden going to take a few steps up in the in the fantasy world, in the real baseball world, and among fans for saying, yeah, he doesn't hit as well as player X, but on the other hand, he's saving 10 games a year with his with the leather, and he, get, he deserves credit for that. Yeah, possibly. I think, you know, again, most fantasy leagues, I think, are probably still five-by-fives where we're playing with, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, categories that in terms of, from an analytic standpoint, are somewhat outdated. The fact that you know, we still care so much about wins and RBIs from a fantasy standpoint is really an anachronism. But uh, in real baseball, we're certainly seeing already trends towards valuing different aspects of players' games. You know, look at the Rays with Jose Molina and Ryan Hannigan as their catching tandem. Two guys who, from a fantasy standpoint, are really very limited in value because they don't hit very much, but defensively because of their pitch-receiving and framing skills or, or our current understanding of what those skills are, um, have a lot more, quote-unquote, real baseball value. So I think ultimately the, the, the key is that we'll be able to have a more complete picture of what each player does well as far as strengths and weaknesses, uh, and then in time we'll be able to relate that to wins, and then you know, player, you'll hopefully see players compensated based on that, or I guess we will. I, I don't know what the market will do from an efficiency standpoint. But as far as fantasy goes, really it comes down to as long as we're playing 5x5, five five, we're going to look for big sluggers, and we're going to look for guys pitching the ninth inning to get the saves. On the other hand, I've heard it argued that a guy who saves a lot of runs with the glove 
stands to get more playing time perhaps at the expense of a guy who 10 years ago or five years ago might have stayed in the lineup solely because of his bat and they turn a blind eye to his defensive shortcomings all of a sudden if they once that gets calibrated better maybe some manager says you know what I'll take the I'll take the five fewer offensive runs to gain the 10 more defensive runs well, you know, I think in a perfect world, that's a good thing. You want to see the best team on the field as often as possible that gives the team the best chance to win. Um, but just like in fantasy, every roster is comprised of different players. Every roster has different strengths and weaknesses. And it's the job of the general manager or in the field manager, which in fantasy is both of you know both roles in one person, to determine what's the correct balance. So, uh, you know, you look at the St. Louis Cardinals, who have by reputation an elite defensive center fielder in Peter Borges, and a guy in John Jay who's viewed as being a much better hitter but not as good a defensive player, uh, you know, they have to decide how to balance the playing time between those two players to maximize their chance of winning the game. Uh, just like in fantasy, you say, well, you know, this guy's playing in San Diego and this guy's playing in Coors, but the guy in San Diego is a better hitter, but the guy going to Coors is the, you know, has the better you know, offensive environment for a couple of days. Who do I play? Ultimately, you have to weigh the pros and cons and strengths and weaknesses and and try and come up with the best answer. And I think ultimately, uh, you know, that's the fun. You can never control what those outcomes are. You can only do what you can to try and put yourself in the best position to win. Coming out of the Sabre convention in March, uh, I thought an interesting question arose, and I'd really like your comment on it because you seem very well positioned to answer it. Are the changes in baseball data gathering and statistical measures evolutionary or revolutionary? Well, from a data capture standpoint, I think PitchFX was a revolution. I think the field tracking system will be a revolution. But from an analytics standpoint, I think it's very much evolutionary over a very long period with you know, occasional revolutionary discoveries. I think you, know, you, you look at Voros McCracken, uh, you know, his DIPS theory, uh, which has been you know, considerably revised and altered and updated and so forth since it first came into the public eye. But you go back to it, that was a revolutionary you know, movement in sabermetrics. Um, Pitch, you know, pitch framing is, is a big thing right now. That might turn out to be, we don't know yet. But, uh, you know, there, there are actually very, very few revolutionary moments from an analytics standpoint, in my opinion. Um, but I think we continue to see evolution, uh, and that takes us into different areas that we hadn't considered. So I think that's one of the things that will be really exciting is when the new field tracking data is available. Um, you give, you know, the same data set to 30 different analysts and researchers, they'll take it in 30 different directions and come up with 30 different great discoveries. So uh, I do think it's more evolutionary with occasional uh, and noticeable revolutionary moments, but uh, it is evolutionary and it has been and I think will continue to be. And I think that's kind of the the definition of evolution, isn't it? It creeps along and then there's some hugely advantageous mutation I'm talking about in the real biological world, and that mutation crowds out all the, the lesser adaptations and pretty soon becomes standard until the next revolution comes along. It's super interesting. And before we leave this topic, Corey, I'm just curious about one more thing. In the area of official scoring, it seems a little anachronistic that we have all this extreme precision in figuring out what's gone on on the field with uh, radar and computers and and cameras and things to calculate how fast the ball's moving and what trajectory it's following. But when we come down to deciding whether a, a batted ball is a hit or an error, which is pretty fundamental to fantasy baseball in particular, we let it be decided by a local guy who has obvious ties to the home team. Is Major League Baseball looking at better scoring decisions, independent scoring, uh, reviewed scoring, anything like that as far as you know? 
I really can't say. You know, that's controlled under the auspices of, of uh, the Office of the Commissioner, and I'm, I'm MLBAM is a separate company. We work closely with them, but we're a separate company. You know, I think official scoring takes a bad rap, to be honest with you. Uh, I think it's a very important role, but ultimately there are people um, that are, to their best of their abilities, trying to make objective judgments about, uh, you know, what the ruling should be on hit versus error and run versus unearned run. And the challenge is that Rule 10, which governs all of this, Rule 10 is fairly vague in some places. Yeah. Um, you know, what is a mechanical error versus an error of omission? Where do you charge an error versus allow a hit? You know, the example we always like to use, the simple example is the batter hits a pop-up right on the infield and the four fielders all gather around and they look at each other waiting for someone to catch it and nobody catches it. You know, by rule, that's a hit. Uh, rule 10 makes that very clear that's a hit. Somebody should have caught it. We all know that as baseball people, but it's a hit. So, uh, you know, I think ultimately... These things tend to tend to wash out over the long season. You know, it's always easier to remember the ones that we say, "Oh, that should have been an error," and they give the guy a hit. But you're talking about tens of thousands of batted balls, thousands and thousands of decisions. And I think, like everybody else, like players, like umpires, the official scores want to get it right. They don't want people yelling at them, uh, and they do the best they can to make the correct ruling. And remember also that there's a very extensive process to make rulings. Uh, there's the official score. There's the Elias Sports Bureau, which. Ref- reviews and make sure the objective parts of Rule 10 are followed. And then Major League Baseball has a review process where teams can request uh, you know, a scoring change, and then a number of people will review a play and decide whether to change it from a hit to an error or vice versa. So the official scores, I think, take a bad rap on the whole. Uh, I think in general they do a great job and a very difficult job. And, you know, again, if I, I've been in those leagues where I've won and lost a, a league by one RBI, by one stolen base and so forth. So I know it can affect you from a fantasy standpoint, but again, you know, it's a long season, and I don't think any official score is, is, is out to get you. Uh, they make the best rulings they can, and, and you know, it affects us all equally. Well, <laughs> I, I didn't suspect that they were like personally after me or anything, but I'll give you an example of what I'm thinking about. I was listening to a game the other night uh, on Sirius XM, and I don't remember who was playing. I think the White Sox were involved, and uh, the the ball player put the ball in play. It should have been fielded. It, it went right off the guy's glove at third base, rolled into the outfield, and you'd think, well, an American Legion kid should have would have made that play 99 times out of 100. This guy just booted it, and... I was listening to the radio broadcast and while watching on TV, and uh, the the color announcer says they scored that an error, but he's our guy, so that'll get changed to a hit. And it was it was in uh, it was in the White Sox ballpark. And sure enough, about twenty seconds later, they you heard that PA system inside the press box say the previous ruling has been changed. And it just seems kind of cynical that everybody knows that you're not going to be objective about it if it's close and it's your guy who hit it. He gets a hit. Well, you know, again, I, you know, there is some subjectivity that goes into it, no question. But again, you know, there is a lot of objectivity that the official scorers try and apply the same standard when the standards are, are, are somewhat vague. And there is a review process for it that Elias Sports Bureau and then the MLB, you know, Rules Committee can take a look at these things. So, you know, again, it's, it's always easy to point at the plays like that where you think there's hometown favoritism. But, you know, when you're in a fantasy league with, you know, 11 or 14 other competitors and you have this sort of mixed roster, the play that, you know, you could get hurt by that one play, but then the next play it could, you know, finger quote, help you that, wow, it looked like it, you know, should have been a hit, but they gave it an error and it saved my, my pitcher 300 runs. So, you know, I, I try and, you know, just sort of like when Pitch FX came out, I tried to sort of not worry so much about the umpires and trust what they're doing more because I realized how good they are and, and how many calls they get right. I try to not worry about official scores too much. I really try and focus on the things I can control, which is what players do I have on my roster and how do I allocate those resources. And after that, 
players play. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Corey Schwartz, Vice President of Statistics at Major League Baseball Advanced Media. Great big new things coming, and you really want to pay attention because this is going to change how you play fantasy baseball. And we talked earlier, Corey, about how it's uh, basically all comes down to the players, and you got to be patient, and you got to be not willing to, to make rash moves at this stage of the season. But I would like to ask you about some underperforming players uh, and overperforming players and how you think their performance to date reflects their actual ability and how you might uh, pursue player moves involving these guys. And I'd like to start with Troy Tulowitzki. Uh, this guy's up around $50 in 5x5 five five production. He's on a lot of t- teams that are leading their leagues through the first month. But I guess it's not so much a facts or fluke question. He's a great player and certainly has $50 production potential every time he comes into a season. But my question is, is the fluke that he stays off the DL? Yeah, and, you know, the problem with injuries is that, you know, there's sort of two categories of injuries. There's, there's the accident, you know, which is two players collide and one player gets a broken bone, you know, like that happened in Jacoby Ellsbury a couple of times. And then there's sort of the recurring injury where a guy pulls a muscle um, or sprains or strains something, and that weakens the part of body and makes it more susceptible to re-injury down the road. And I think that's really the big risk with Tulowitzki. I mean, look, nobody's finger quote this good. I don't think we're going to see a guy hit you know 400 or you know put up a you know a 600 on base percentage or whatever all season long. You know, Barry Bonds is gone. Um, the question with Tulowitzki is simply how well can he avoid those injuries? And really, you know, unfortunately, his track record is generally not very encouraging. So. Um, I certainly don't wish injury on any player, particularly a guy who's having a phenomenal year like Tulowitzki is, but I think you, that fear has to be in the back of your mind. You know, from a performance standpoint, we know this guy's going to hit over 300. We know he's going to hit for power. You know, you have to be worried about whether or not he'll run anymore. Um, you know, there was a point in his season where he's, in his career when he stole 20 bases. I don't think he's even attempted one yet this year. You know, gradually that average will drift down, and we'll see, you know, what kind of hitter he is. But that does diminish his value a little bit as well, and that's sort of an after effect of a lot of the injuries he's had. But look, end of the day, this guy's a great player having a great season, and it's fun to watch. Would you trade for him if he if somebody in your league made him available, and and the price was Robinson Cano? Would I trade Cano for Tulowitzki? Wow, that's a you know that's a good challenge question because you've got a feeling that you've seen you know the best part of Tulowitzki's season already, and we haven't seen the best part of Cano's season. You know. The nice part about it is if you, know, if you have Cano and you're getting impatient, Tulowitzki's a pretty great return because they went pretty close to each other on draft day anyway. So, right. Well, I don't know. I'd be hard-pressed to turn that one down. That's a good, that's a good question. Personally, I think I'd keep Cano. And the, and the reason is, as you said, I've seen an absolute peak of Tulowitzki, and even if he does stay healthy, it's not going to be at this level. And I think Cano probably is going to stay healthy. He has that track record. The park's a bit of a problem, I know. But gosh, uh, sooner or later, this guy's going to hit, and he's going to hit a lot. And I, I would rather have him on my roster when he was doing it if I'd had him in the first place. Uh, Corey, how big a believer are you in Jose Abreu? He's earned 33 bucks so far. He's got 12 home runs as we speak. He's over 30 RBI already. This is a monster year shaping up, and, and to think that everybody said he was going to have trouble because of the cold weather. Uh, it's funny, I, you know, I, I have a couple of friends who work for the White Sox in different capacities, so I was talking with them about Abreu back over the winter, and I said, all right, really, tell me what you think of this guy. And, and independent of each other, they both said the same thing. His power will play anywhere. When he gets fooled, he can hit the ball out. Uh, and I think that's what we're seeing. You know, he's kind of a Mark Trumbo, you know, Adam Dunn guy in terms of power that he's going to hit 35 to 40 almost by mistake because he's just so strong. <clears throat> but, you know, the other thing they brought up is we were talking about, obviously, you know, what his batting average will be. Is he going to hit 230 or 260 or 290? 
in Cuba, he had tremendous walk and strikeout numbers, um, more walks than strikeouts, and hit for an extremely high average. But they pointed out, and you know, laughingly so, that you know the top players in Cuba can compete on the international stage. You see that in the World Baseball Classic, and, and here in the U.S. when guys come over. But the the bottom end of the Cuban league is guys who are you know grocers and plumbers and mechanics and stuff, and they play baseball recreationally to fill out the roster. So Jose Abreu comes up. The guy who's a bagger at the local market isn't even pitching to Abreu. That's not great place plate discipline by Abreu. That's just the guy saying, forget it. I'm not pitching to this guy. I don't want to get killed. So, um, you know, I think that's what we're seeing right now. He's striking out a lot, not drawing a lot of walks. The batting average is drifting downward a little bit. If he hits 250 or 260, he can be an extremely valuable player. But you just have to be concerned that it might drift down at some point, you know, into that Adam Dunn territory you know, where he hits 210 or 220, and then you have to, you know, you have to get 40 homers to make that worthwhile. Yeah, that that sounds like a really sharp analysis. Uh, I think uh, the other the other part of it is Major League Baseball pitchers are extremely adept at adapting to the weaknesses that are found by the video teams and, and by the coaches on the field and stuff like that. And there, if there is a hole in o- Jose Abreu's approach or in his swing, it's going to get exploited, and it may take a little time for the word to get out. But uh, you know, not the first time we've seen a new player start off really hot and then maybe not uh, been able to sustain it. We will see. Uh, how about Juan Uribe in Los Angeles, kind of third baseman by default coming into the season? Here he is, a seventeen dollar player so far. Well, you know, look, the nice thing about Uribe is that he's old enough that we pretty much know exactly what he is. Um, but even within within those parameters, Uribe has surprised at points. I know he had a year with the Giants a couple of years ago where he had a huge second half, uh, hit for a lot of power. Uh, you know, he was decent last year with the Dodgers when he played. You know, ultimately, he's a guy who's going to hit 260 or 270. He's going to give you decent power. And if he gets on a hot streak, he might, you know, bump that all up by 10%. But you know what you're going to get with him. And, and I think ultimately, wherever his numbers are today, we've got a pretty good feeling where he's going to end up at the end of the season. And we all probably believe in Mike Morse's eight home runs, but how about the two ninety five batting average? That doesn't seem sustainable, but do you think it could be? Well, you know, I used to think that about Morse a couple of years ago when he had his sort of uh, his peak seasons, I guess, with, what was it, with the Nationals. You know, I didn't view him as being a high average hitter, but the thing I always have to remind myself is that a home run is a hit, too. Uh, and if a guy hits 30 home runs, that's going to prop up the average a little bit. You know, Morse will strike out. He doesn't draw a ton of walks. But he's not exactly what you would call, you know, uh, you know, a, a total zero in those regards. Uh, and because he hits for a lot of power, that will pop, prop up the average. So I don't think he's a 290 hitter. You know, I would again expect him more in the 270, 280 range. But I do think he's a guy capable of hitting 25 to 30 or more, or maybe even more home runs over a full season because we've seen him do it before. Moving on to hitters who are underperforming expectations, fantasy owners have been waiting a long time on Yonder Alonso of the Padres, and here he is, minus $11 to start the year. He's at 165 or so for a batting average. Is this a turnaround buy-low opportunity, or is this a, a real deal and stay away? Well, look, I, I don't think he's this bad. I mean, look, I don't think Troy Tulowitzki is good enough to hit 420 all season, and I don't think Yonder Alonso is going to hit 160 all season. But the question is, what is your upside here? Um, you know, he's not a guy who's shown really any meaningful power at any point in his pro career. Uh, he'll hit for good averages, but not an elite average. So, you know, think about what you would pay for a James Loney type in fantasy or, you know, back in the day, maybe a Mark Grace type. He's a nice player. He's probably more likely the guy that you're going to pick up off waiver wire, the waiver wire at some point in the season in a mixed league uh, and hope he gives you a couple of good weeks. But I don't view him, even with his slow start, I don't view him as being a buy-low target. I just don't think there's enough upside to worry about trading for. Another Padre who had probably more believers coming into the season is Jed Jerko. 
He only, he has three home runs this year, which is you know it's okay. But he's also under 170. Is Jed Jerko's slow start a factor of fluke? I'd be more inclined to buy in on Jerko than Alonzo because he has power, uh, and we saw that last year. He hit 20-plus homers. He hit for a lot of power in the minors. He's started to come around a little bit lately, um, but the thing you have to be concerned about with him as well is that he's not commanding the strike zone. You know, roughly 4-1 to last year, 4-1 to this year. He showed better plate discipline in the minors, and he's going to have to bring that up to the major league level as well. So I think he's a better bet to come around than Alonzo. Um, given his ability to drive the ball, but I think he's going to have to do a better job of controlling the strike zone first. Chris Johnson of the Braves has one home run and I think five RBI and well over 100 at-bats. Is this uh, slow start and run production a fact or a fluke? Well, you know, I have Johnson on my NFBC team, so I've been looking into this one a lot. And, uh, you know, Jason Collette is a big, big Johnson fan, and he's pointed out that, you know, Johnson puts up huge line drive rates, and that's really what props up his batting average on balls in play. And in fact, the amazing thing is this year, Johnson's line drive rate is a career high, um, but his batting average on balls in play uh, is something like, you know, 70 points lower than it was last year. So, you know, he's never going to be a huge power hitter, but I do think that batting average will continue to climb uh, as some more of those line drives start to go through. But, you know, an interesting thing, kind of bringing the conversation full circle, is this a good thing or a bad thing that teams have more data on defense now and are starting to shift more aggressively and reposition more aggressively that even though Chris Johnson has very, I mean, huge line drive rates, he hasn't been able to hit for average uh, because maybe he's a little bit predictable in how he hits the ball. So it's up to the players to adapt. I think he will hit for some, you know, quote-unquote better luck as we go forward. But if the constantly pulling the ball... Uh, and defenses are able to better defend for that, then he might have to adapt as well. Yeah, we Willie Keeler hit him where they ain't is getting harder and harder to do because they always are where they ain't. Uh, Carlos Santana of the Indians, four home runs, but he's also way under 200. Is that a fact or a fluke? I I think it's a fluke. You know, I think ultimately, you know, he's controlling the strike zone pretty much as well as he ever has, so, you know, that's a good sign. But the thing you have to worry about with Santana is the defensive position change. Um, you know, presumably you would think going out from behind the plate would be good for any player, and we're seeing a similar issue with Joe Maurer with the Twins. But we don't understand the psychology of how these things affect players. Um, we don't know how much time he's worrying about playing third base competently and not hurting himself or embarrassing himself or letting down the team, how much that's affecting other parts of his game or distracting from other parts of his game. So uh, I do think he'll play better because of his strike zone discipline. That should allow him uh, to continue to pr- improve that batting average. But ultimately... Um, I wouldn't be shocked if he ended up with a very disappointing season because that that shift to third base uh, distracted him in some way. Unfortunately, it's an area where we're dealing with imperfect information and we'll only know at the end what the effect really was. Yeah, it's a great point. He still looks very uncomfortable over there, even though Terry Francona and the club are saying, you know, he's doing well and they seem to be trying to encourage him and, and bolster him over there. It must be dispiriting as a major league ball player to kick routine ground balls that often, even though it's not terribly often. And and as you say, then he looks at himself and says, man, you're costing your team runs and you're maybe costing your team games. And then he starts putting pressure on himself to hit the ball more and that leads to less. And it's a tough, tough thing to do. And I, I wonder if there's been a lot of research done about players shifting positions and what happens. We, we know about the left to right movement on the uh, on the continuum of defensive difficulty, and it's supposed to get, as as you move over towards first base, you're supposed to be able to become a better hitter because you don't have so much to worry about, but maybe it isn't so. Uh, looking at pitchers, overperformers, Jordan Lyles of the Rockies, not a lot of people looking hard at him coming into the league, but he's off to a great start. He's got four wins, ERA under three, his whip's right around one. Uh, Jordan Lyles, what do you think, fact or a fluke? Well, 
somewhat fact and somewhat fluke. You know, he's relying a lot more on his sinker and getting a lot more ground balls as a result, and his command has improved. So those are all very, very good signs. Uh, and we forget he's, he's still only 23 years old. I mean, he's a very, very young pitcher uh, with a lot of ceiling, a lot of room for improvement. But, again, the thing you have to be worried about is that he's barely striking out five batters per nine innings, uh, and at a certain point that's going to come back and bite you in the butt. So, um, you know, I, I do think there's some regression coming, whether it's up to a three-and-a-half or a four ERA, I really don't know. Uh, but I certainly don't expect him to maintain the, the hot start he's had so far unless he can find a way to strike guys out a little bit more. You know, maybe that was a trade-off that by going from, you know, by throwing, uh, you know, fewer four-seamers and more more two-seamers or sinkers and, you know, cutting down on the sliders and curves or whatever, maybe that diminished his strikeout ability a little bit at the expense of getting more ground balls. So we'll have to see how that plays out. But uh, I think that ERA is going to go up one way or the other. Kind of the opposite situation with Willie Peralta in Milwaukee. A lot of people thought he had a pretty good chance this year to be uh, a breakout candidate, and here he is. He's among the league leaders, 22 bucks, four wins, ERA two, a whip of one. Uh, Willie Peralta, is this a fact or a fluke? Yeah, well, again, I think mostly fact, somewhat fluke. I was a big believer in him. I've had him on teams the last two years at various points, and, and I did invest in him in a couple of teams this year. I do think he's going to have a breakthrough season. Uh, he throws extremely hard. His slider is a real major league wipeout pitch, uh, and he's learned com- to command both of those better. His walk rate so far has really been exceptional. He's cut his walks by half last year while ha- getting a bump in the strikeouts. Um, but you're seeing some good luck on batting on uh, you know runners left on base. For example, uh, was it yesterday, the day before, he gave up 11 hits in six innings, but only two runs. Those numbers usually don't go well together. So I think his ERA will gradually creep up, but I don't think he's a blow-up candidate. Uh, I think this is an example of a good young pitcher who's adapted to the major leagues and who has the stuff to continue to be successful. The Mets, the Mets Dylan, Dylan G has, G has three wins. wins. He's around two and a half and one. And one. He has three, he has three wins, wins as well. Is this is a this fact or a fluke? Yeah, I'm a big Dylan G fan. You know, you look at, let's say, his last roughly 30 starts going back to that 12 strikeout game against the Yankees last year. He's had like a three ERA and like a 115 whip over that stretch. So, um, you know, that's almost a full season of work that says this guy's a pretty good pitcher. You know, he's very different, um, you know, than Willie Peralta, who throws 96 or 97 with that great slider. Dylan G is a guy who mixes it up, who throws really four pitches and or five pitches if you want to, you know, differentiate his fastball. Uh, who throws a lot of curves, who throws a lot of sliders, who throws a lot of change-ups, who, you know, a guy who pitches rather than just throwing and trying to dominate. So uh, I think he continu- can continue to be successful. You know, again, will that ERA creep up a little bit? Probably, but can he maintain something in the low to mid threes? I think absolutely. Uh, I'm a big fan. I'm, I'm disappointed I didn't get him on more teams this year. Our last, Our last uh, over-performer, a two ERA, ERA and a one whip for Jordano Ventura of the Royals. Probably, probably one of the, one of the nicest, nicest breakout stories so far this year, but can he keep it up? Is it a fact or a fluke? Tough to say. I mean, he's got amazing, dominating stuff. Uh, his command has been excellent so far. You know, certainly the metrics say he's gotten a little bit lucky, but overall he's been, quote-unquote, this good. You know, the thing you have to worry about with Ventura uh, is that he's very young, he's very slight of build. Uh, he's never really thrown a ton of innings in any professional season, and you have to wonder how he'll hold up over the summer and into the late part of the season. So, you know, ideally, you know, it's frustrating sometimes for a fantasy player to see your guy pulled out after five innings and not get the win. Um, you know, we saw this a lot with Danny Salazar last year, but would you rather have the pitcher hold up over the full season and maybe sacrifice a few wins doing it uh, or really have him pushed early and then maybe sort of burn out and fade away? Uh, I think we'll probably see a little bit more of the former with Ventura where the Royals will treat him very carefully, and that might cost him some wins, but I think over the long term he'll benefit from it. So, um, 
you know, there's a lot of risk with young pitchers, but his early season performance has just been just been fantastic. I'll say, I'll say 41, 41 strikeouts in 36 innings is going to make a believer out of a lot of people. Moving on, Moving on to some underperformers, uh, Cole Hamels of the Phillies started off last year terribly on my, on my tout worst team, I should point out, and he has had some significant uh, DL time since, and this year, again, off to a slow start. His ERA is over 7, his whip is up around 2. At what point has this guy become a fact to avoid or a fluke waiting to be snapped up when somebody makes him available? Well, I thought he was actually a buying opportunity this year. I have him on almost every single team, so <laughs> unfortunately I'm acutely aware uh, of his struggles to date. But I think you have to give him a little bit of a pass. He was sharp on rehab, but you know the major leagues is a very, very different thing. He was very good in his first start against the Dodgers. Uh, his second start, uh, can't remember who was that against the Mets. The Mets own him for starters. I have no idea why. Uh, he pitched on a very cold and raw, rainy night, didn't have command of his pitches. Uh, and then against the Blue Jays, he just got ripped, and there's pretty much not much more you can say about that. But I think you have to look at this is only three starts, and this is a guy who's got a you know, seven- or eight-year track record of being one of the most consistent, reliable starters in baseball. So, as I said, I have him in a lot of leagues. I'm trotting him out there every start, um, and I'm going to wait this one out because I think ultimately he's a guy whose performance will, will pay off over a full season. Uh, uh, two or three, three weeks ago here on Baseball, Baseball HQ Radio, Radio I asked another guest about Homer Bailey of the Reds, and he, and he said the slow start was a fluke, and since then things haven't improved a, a whole bunch. He's still over 5 for an ERA and over 1-5 for a whip, despite 38 strikeouts in 40 innings. Is Homer Bailey going to turn it around here, Corey? Is he a fact or a fluke at this terrible level? I think he's a huge, huge buy-low opportunity. Um, his strikeouts are, are right where they were last year. The walk rate is up slightly, but nothing that would really concern you. Uh, what's concerning is that his home run rate has doubled. It's almost 20% right now, which is fluky for almost any pitcher. Uh, and his uh, his batting average on balls in play is up over 80 points from last year, about 70 points over his career mark. So that's going to come down, too. His, as I said, his strikeout rate is good. His ground ball rate is a career high. Uh, I think he's going to turn it around. And, and, and we've seen over the last two years that he's a guy that when he gets in the groove, he can really have a long run of success. So I would be buying low on him rather than selling. Among relievers, Ernesto Frieri lost his closer spot with the Angels, even though he's striking him out at uh, the same rates. And he has a 6.28 ERA this year, partly because he's given up six home runs already. Is Ernesto Frieri a fact who's going to stay out of that closer spot or a fluke who's going to get the job back? Well, a, a little bit of both. He's kind of got the job back. You know, he got the save on Monday night when, when Joe Smith was uh, ill and had the, the strained muscle in his side and was unable to pitch. And then Freire got the ninth inning in a tie game at home, which is generally when you use your closer and gave up the home run to Brian Roberts. But, you know, Mike Sosha's made it very clear he wants Freire to succeed and get back in that ninth inning role. Uh, we've seen this the last two years with Freire that he's given them some, he- some headaches at times, but, you know, they've always kind of gone back to him. You know, he's the difference between command and control. Uh, his strikeout to walk rate this year is excellent, um, career best, in fact, um, but he's not commanding in the strike zone. He's throwing a lot of fastballs in really poor, hittable locations, um, and because he has good stuff, he's getting strikeouts as a result, but you know, when guys are barreling it up, they're able to hit, you know, hit home runs off him. I think eventually that will, that will settle down, as it has in the past, where we'll see him commanding better. Uh, we'll see some of those fly balls dying up the warning track instead of carrying over, and I think we'll see him con- get back into that closer role. I don't think he's capable of being an elite guy because of his homeritis, uh, but I think he's capable of being a good second or third closer, depending on the format. And I have him in a couple of leagues. I'm, I'm hanging on. I'm keeping him on the bench for now and, and looking for him to get in a good role. 
Speaking of closers, nobody's jumped up in Oakland to take Jim Johnson's spot after he lost it. Is he going to come back and get that job back before long? Yeah, you know, honestly, if you'd asked me this a week or two weeks ago, and and, in all honesty, I would have bet on him. I would have called him a buy low. And and I I think ultimately, just like we were talking about with Freire with the Angels, I think the A's want Johnson in that closer role because they have so many good tactical options in their bullpen that having him there in the ninth inning to sort of wrap things up is a good fit. I, I I like Johnson a lot coming into this year. You know, the one big concern he had with the Orioles was being homer prone. Um, but he was going into a ballpark that would really help that a lot, obviously, in Oakland. Uh, and anytime Billy Bean acquires a player, I tend to sort of take notice of that and think that maybe I should pay attention as well. So, uh, And if I had the chance to buy low on him, I would as well. And finally, Madison Bumgarner has an ERA of 318, which looks pretty good. He's fanned 46 guys in 40 innings, which is great. But his whip is 156, and this feels to me like it must be a fluke, is it? Yeah, it's all batting average on balls in play. You know, again, the walk rate is up slightly from last year, but the strikeout rate is way up. Uh, His entire issue right now is the batting average on balls in play. So, you know, you can say that's quote-unquote bad luck. I mean, that's sort of the the proxy for what people use Babip for. Um, I think you can also use it to mean that the guy has lost a little bit of effectiveness and maybe he's being a little bit more hittable in how he is around the zone. Um, But, you know, looking at his ground ball, line drive, and fly ball rates, minor changes, but nothing you worry about uh, too much at this point. I think his pitch selection is pretty consistent. His velocity is pretty consistent. And we've got three really good years of data right now on Bumgarner to tell us what kind of pitcher he is. So assuming he's healthy, and I don't want to jinx it, uh, I expect he'll he'll be what he's been the last three years because he's been very consistent at that. Corey, this has been great. Uh, Before we sign off... uh I wonder. I asked you about the NBA. You got a Stanley Cup champion? Or you're not into hockey either. Oh no, no. Uh, you know, I always rooted for the Canadians in hockey. Just my my uh, my stepbrother was a is a hockey fan, so I would just root for the Canadians. But I have more Rangers fans now. So are the Rangers still in the playoffs? If so, I'm rooting for them. I think they are, but they're down to Pittsburgh. Ah, uh, okay. Well, maybe they can come back. Go Rangers. <laughs> 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 Tell us where listeners can get more from Corey Schwartz. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Uh, follow us online at fantasy411.mlblogs.com. We do Pitcher Ditch. We put all kinds of good ups, good stuff up there. Uh, Fred Zanke and, and Zach the Goose Steinhorn write a lot of good stuff there. I'm on Twitter at Schwartzstops, and we have the general account at fantasy411 where we put up uh, a lot more good stuff. So um, I hope everybody will check it out. And every now and then we do a podcast as well. It's been less frequent this year, but we're still going. Corey, thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Another uh, award winner, I'm sure. I hope so, Patrick. Let's get a little streak going. <laughs> Two in a row. Corey Schwartz is the vice president and director of statistics for Major League Baseball Advanced Media, and he's a past champion in the Tout Wars Mixed Auction League. On deck, our HQ commentaries, the Metric Minute and Minor League Minute, are coming up. This is Baseball HQ Radio. Playing fantasy baseball is about having fun. So have more fun more often with One Month Fantasy Games at ChandlerPark.com. One Month Games offer the best of both worlds, the fast action and excitement of daily games with the strategy and tactics of full-season formats. You draft your team using set salaries, all based on player performance. Then you set your roster twice a week, playing matchups in hot hand. Best of all, one bad month doesn't sink your whole season. And a fast start puts you in the money that much quicker. More fantasy fun, more often with one month fantasy games at ShandlerPark.com. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Be sure to check out BaseballHQ.com right now for these features. Dan Becker looks at potential power faders in the Batter Buyer's Guide. 
In his Chasing the NFBC column, Glenn Lowy writes about the long road back to the 20%. And Stephen Nickran checks out young building block starters in his Starting Pitcher Buyer's Guide. Plus, we have all the regular analysis of playing time, facts and flukes performance validation, buyer's guides, division outlooks, and more. It's fantasy intelligence for winners, and it is at BaseballHQ.com. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentaries. We have minor league analyst Rob Gordon on deck with the Minor League Minute. And leading off, it's the Metric Minute. And telling us about ground ball, line drive, and fly ball rates for hitters, here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. This week we take a look at ground balls, line drives, and fly ball rates for hitters in the metric minute. These three metrics simply measure the percentage of times that a ball is put in play as a ground ball, a line drive, or a fly ball. Uh, last year the major league averages for these numbers are as follows. The average ground ball rate was 45%, line drives were 20%, the lowest out of the three, and the average fly ball rate was 35%. Uh, taking this even further and relating back to the metric minute of last week for, for uh, hit rate, each type of batted ball has an associated hit rate to go along with them. So last week we said the league average hit rate was 30%, but we can go a bit deeper here. The, the average hit rate for ground balls was 28%. Line drives is by far the highest, has a 72% hit rate, or 72% of line drives fall in for hits. And fly balls were the lowest, only 15% of fly balls dropped in for hits. Now research has shown that batters typically build their own baseline for the type of ball put in play and they typically regress to that baseline if there's any outliers. A couple examples of how you can use these metrics, uh, for instance the Royals have a pair of hard hitting batters, Eric Hosmer and Billy Butler, uh, but both have heavy ground ball profiles, it puts a lid on their home run potential. Uh, both have fly ball rates around 30% or lower uh, for their careers just despite the ability to hit the ball hard. D. Gordon has a 60% ground ball rate almost through through mid-May so far. Combine that with his above average contact rate, and he's an example of the guy putting his best skill, which is his speed, uh, to work by getting on base and then stealing bags. He doesn't have the power to hit many home runs, so he might as well keep the ball down and get on first. So depending on the type of player, we can look for different types of batted ball profiles. For example, you may want to look at your power hitters to have high fly ball rates to obviously uh, pad those home run totals. Well, for some of your speedsters and stolen base guys, it could be advantageous to have higher ground ball rates so they can get on base more often and get those steals. So next week we'll take a look at how ground ball rates, line drives, and fly ball rates can be applied uh, when analyzing pitchers. So for Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield writes regularly for BaseballHQ.com and talks about various site metrics and how to use them every Tuesday here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now the Minor League Minute, and with a look at Cleveland right-handed pitching prospect Trevor Bauer, here's Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. In this week's edition of the Minor League Minute, we take another look at the Cleveland Indians' Trevor Bauer. In 2011, you'll remember that Bauer was the third overall pick in the draft, and many were calling him the next Tim Lincecum. He was from the West Coast, logged tons of innings at college at UCLA, had a quirky personality, and an electric fastball despite a relatively small stature. Unfortunately, little has gone right for Bauer since then. A groin injury and then inconsistent mechanics resulted in below average control, and too often he left the ball up in the strike zone or couldn't find the strike zone at all. In 2013, for example, Bauer walked 73 batters in 121 innings at AAA and then posted a 529 ERA in four starts with the Indians. 
The stuff was still electric, especially the Bugs Bunny curveball and the plus sinking changeup, but coming into 2014, there were and still are serious concerns about Bauer's ability to put it all together. During the offseason, Bauer revamped his delivery, slowed his approach, and is working to develop more consistent release points. And while the sample size is small, in six starts with AAA, Bauer is 4-0 with a 1.12 ERA. Most importantly, he's walked just 11 while striking out 40 in 48.1 innings pitched. For fantasy owners looking to catch lightning in a bottle, Trevor Bauer makes an excellent target. Just be prepared for some bumps along the road. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garropy, Chris Maloney, and Brent Hershey have reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-up reports, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, Rob has a column on early season breakouts in the minors. BaseballHQ.com's call-up reports this week have looked at Mets right-hander Rafael Montero, Texas second-base prospect Rugened Odor, and many, many others. You also want to check the minor league watch list, looking at less heralded prospects who appear to have a solid path to the majors, like Kansas City outfielder Christian Colon, Tampa catcher Kurt Casale, Philadelphia right-handed relief pitcher Ken Giles, and many others. In all, if you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. And that's Baseball HQ Radio, the Tuesday Tout Edition for May the 13th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 33 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our featured guest expert on this Tuesday edition, former Tout Wars Mixed Auction Champion and the Vice President for Stats at MLB Advanced Media, Corey Schwartz, always a great guest for the show. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Metric Minute commentator was analyst Ryan Bloomfield, and with the Minor League Minute, Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. I'm Patrick Davitt. I have a research piece on the site right now looking at fastball velocity versus outcomes for pitchers. And of course, I always hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Also, check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. And you can feel free to follow my personal Twitter account at Patrick Davitt. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our News and Notes edition featuring League Watch News reports, Todd Zola, pitcher matchups, and master notes. And on the next Tuesday Tout edition, from Rotowire and Sirius XM Fantasy Sports, Jeff Erickson, on another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>